Support for this podcast provided by Wisconsin Historical Society Press, proud publishers of Madison in the 60s by Stuart Levitin, an absorbing and evocative account of 10 years that changed the city forever. To order Madison in the 60s and other beautiful books that share our state's centuries-long history and culture in service to the mission of the Wisconsin Historical Society, visit wisconsinhistory.org whspress. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Well, it's that most wonderful time of the year, time for the Wisconsin Book Festival, 28 events this week alone, both in person and online, and our guest today is one of the featured presenters and one of the brightest stars in the firmament that is the University of Wisconsin faculty, Professor Jordan Ellenberg, to discuss his New York Times bestseller, Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. Professor Ellenberg will be appearing this Saturday at 3 o'clock at the Discovery Building, 330 North Orchard Street, so I thought it would be a good idea to dial up an encore presentation of our conversation from this past July. As coined by the ancient Greeks, geometry literally means measuring the world, and the world which Jordan Ellenberg measures in shape is wide and far-flung indeed. Gerrymandering, the TV show Survivor, Abraham Lincoln, pandemics and flitting mosquitoes, artificial intelligence, even an answer to the question, how many holes in a straw? And it's an accessible world. Yes, there are symbols and equations, and you're welcome to have pad and paper with you as you read, but the book is mainly a narrative built on stories and people. Jordan Ellenberg was not a late bloomer. The son of two biostatisticians, he taught himself to read at age two by watching Sesame Street, He was competing in high school math competitions while in the fourth grade, and four years later, he was taking honors calculus at the University of Maryland. At 17, he beat out 400,000 North American high school students to win the USA Mathematical Olympiad, and over a three-year period, took two golds and a silver at the International Mathematical Olympiad. He took his BA and PhD at Harvard with a master's from Johns Hopkins in creative writing in between, then started his academic career at Princeton. He came to the University of Wisconsin in 2005, made full professor in 2011, was named a Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor in 2014, and since 2015 has been the John D. MacArthur Professor of Mathematics. His previous books include How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking in 2014, and the novel The Grasshopper King. He also has accredited cameo in the 2017 movie Gifted, in the role of math professor, giving him a Kevin Bacon degree of separation of two and making him one of the extraordinarily small and select group of people with an Erdosh Bacon number. He maintains a blog, quomodocumque.wordpress.com, that's Latin for somehow, and tweets at J.S. Ellenberg. And he has even been featured in the New York Times book review column by the book. It is a great pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Professor Jordan Ellenberg. 
Well, thanks so much for having me on, Stu. It's great to be here. As I noted in the introduction, you were a math prodigy as a child, but by your own declaration, you are not geometric by nature. So why write a book about geometry? Well, you know, what we are by nature doesn't necessarily translate into what we are as adults. So as a kid uh, and as a young man, yeah, uh, when I was doing math, I would try to avoid the geometric side of things. I would try to make things as algebraic as possible because I don't have that sort of spatial sense that a lot of people have. You know, I'm one of those people who if I'm in, if I go in somebody's house in an instant, I couldn't tell you which direction is which. If you point to a wall, I couldn't tell you which direction that is outside. And I think a lot of people carry around an instinctive ability to visualize in three dimensions that I just don't have. If I try to put my credit card in the gas tank, I can't look at that picture and figure out what to do. I've got to try all four ways of sliding that thing into the slot to figure out where the strip is supposed to go. Man, you should have seen me putting together this wheelbarrow I was putting together <laughs> the other day that I bought at Home Depot. Anyway, it's a long story. It took me a long time. But the point is that even for all of that, I am a geometer today. That's my literal job. And so I've sort of come around to the geometric side of things, uh, both in my research and as a person who writes about math for the public, like thinking about all these topics that I find myself writing about. Uh, when I thought about the thread that joined them, why do they feel like they belong in the same book? That's when I sort of started to see, see that all of these things were about exploring various geometries. That was sort of the genesis for this concept for this book. So is your experience a lesson to those who think that they don't have math minds that actually, yes, they do. And they just need to open themselves up to it. I think the mathematical capacity is a very, very basic one. And we bring to it whatever our strengths are. You know, if somebody's strength is kind of spatial visualization, they're going to bring that to their mathematical reasoning. If somebody is more of a kind of formal linguistic thinker, they're going to bring that to their mathematical reasoning in the same way that like you wouldn't talk about somebody being good or bad at talking, you know, whatever their skills are, they sort of bring that to their ability to use the English language for various purposes. And I think thinking and reasoning mathematically is just as basic as that. Why do so many people think they hate geometry? Well, I think it is definitely very different from the rest of the curriculum. I mean, when I, you know, I've, because I've been on this beat of like writing books about math, talking to people about math, you know, a lot of people tell me their stories. They write me email or if I'm doing an event in person, if you remember those, people will come up to me after. Um, and they tell me about their experiences in math. And another thing that sort of made this book appealing was that people talked about geometry a lot. And sometimes... It's them saying just what you said. I hated geometry. I like solving problems. I like getting the answer. The answer is five. I like that. Geometry, what is this business with the triangles and the congruent angles and the proofs? You know what I mean? There were other, but other people, there's a group of people just as big who are like all this algebra and the signs and the cosines, like who cares? But when we did geometry, that made sense to me. Then I really felt like I was doing something. So um, what everybody agrees on, even though they have very different experiences with their geometry class is that it's different. It's not like everything else in the curriculum. That I found very intriguing. You make the point in the book that geometry is something that we intuitively understand that is relevant to our lives, that, that we see ourselves in the world from an earliest age. How much does that carry with us throughout our lives? 
I think it never leaves us. And, you know, of course, people are going to vary a lot in how much directly they're thinking about geometry with sort of somebody as a professional mathematician at the high end of that. But I think we are all reasoning geometrically. We talk geometrically. You know, when we sort of say anytime we use a metaphor of near or far, this person's like a close relative, that other is a distant relative. This is a close friend. That's kind of a distant acquaintance. We're geometrizing the world, right? We're sort of saying that all of our friends and family and everything are somehow located in some space in which some things are far apart and other things are close together. Sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. Uh, yeah, another geometric metaphor. You mentioned algebra. There's some data that shows that failing algebra is one of the gateway drugs to dropping out of high school. I understand why we need arithmetic and I understand why we need geometry, but do we, do we need algebra to get through our lives? So that's actually something I talked about in the last book. And I would say yes, and let me make the case. There's, and first of all, I wanna say that we know where the junction points are, where people fall off the bus, where people are like, I understood it up to this point, and then it became very hard. And algebra is not the first one. The first one is fractions. Fractions are really hard, and because we're kind of used to them, we treat them like they're easy. But it's a big conceptual leap because um, it's a leap in like what a number is, right? Up until that moment, a number is the answer to some question, how many? A fraction's a different kind of thing, right? How many apples do you have? Like three-sevenths. That's not really an answer to a how many question. It's a different kind of thing, and yet you're expected to treat it like a number. Now we're going to add fractions. What? Like, why? That, that's not a number. That's a new kind of thing. That is a really conceptually challenging thing uh, that students have to learn. And algebra is another high bar to clear, where, you know, I describe it as kind of reverse engineering, where this whole time in school so far, you've been working forwards, saying I have five things and seven things, and I put them together, and now how many do I have, right? And you work hard to get really good at answering those questions, which is a challenge in itself. And the moment that you've sort of really mastered that, then you're like, okay, now we're going to go in reverse. I have five things and I have things. I'm not going to tell you how many. I want to put them together. I get 12. Now you got to go reverse from the answer to what the input must have been. And that's a problem of a conceptually higher order. But wouldn't you agree? It's pretty important in life to develop the cognitive skill of saying, I can see the result what must have been the cause? What must have gone into the hopper to produce that output, to produce that result? That's like a very, very key mode of reasoning in algebra is where we teach it. Hmm. You know, you look, at, you look at the world around you and you're trying to figure out how did it get this way? Of the things that I can't see, the X, what must they be in order to, in order to produce the results that I'm actually experiencing and seeing in the world. You better be able to do that if you want to think about society or anything, seriously. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. Uh, <laughs> geometry goes back about 4,000 years to the second millennium before the common era. And it's a bunch of guys drawing in the sand with sticks. How much has it been affected by advances in technology? Oh, hugely. And I would say, by the way, because I'm going to stump for the idea that geometry is a pretty basic human activity, I think it's a lot older than 2,000 years. I think the written record that we have is maybe 2,000 years old. But well, I said I it think... goes back 4,000 to the second millennium BCE. Oh, OK, OK. But yeah, certainly, like everything else in mathematics, we have both better kind of 
mental technology, like better technique that we've worked out with our brains over the years and better computational technology. So that, you know, one thing I write about a lot in the book is in all these developments in artificial intelligence, they fundamentally constitute what those algorithms are doing are navigating around in space, but it's not space like we're familiar with, like three-dimensional space. That's already pretty hard, right? Navigating in three-dimensional space. Um, this is moving around in space of billions of dimensions. So an abstract space that we can't use our physical intuition alone to navigate, we need help. And that's where high-powered computers come in. And that's where high-powered computers come in and also our sort of ability to abstract and recognize which things about ultra-high dimensional space are like the three-dimensional space we're used to and which things are different. How young were you when you understood concepts like three-dimensional space? Do you remember the moment you realized the beauty and allure of mathematics? Well, you know, a story I always tell, this is not about three-dimensional space, it's about two-dimensional space, but let's let's do it. I mean, a story I always tell, and I don't know exactly how old I was, was is kind of looking at my parents' uh, speaker panel, and I'll date myself here by saying that my childhood comes from the 1970s, like the era of the kind of like wood-paneled living room where like everything had to be encased in dark wood. And so, you know, you have this panel with like a rectangular array of holes in it to let the sound out, you know, so a nice perforated panel. Um, a rectangular array, six by eight of holes in the panel. Um, and I remember just kind of gazing at that, kind of my mind wandering, not really going anywhere and seeing that it was, uh, it was six rows with eight holes each. But it was also eight columns of six holes each. So the, you know, the 48 holes they, there were, they were six eights, but they were also eight sixes. Well, this was an amazing realization. I mean, I knew, however old I was, the six times eight and eight times six were the same. And I think I knew because I had learned the multiplication table that it didn't matter which order you multiplied things in, that three by five was the same as five by three. But what I had not understood until that moment is that there was a reason that that was so, that that had to be so. It wasn't just like a property the multiplication table happened to have uh, as far as I had been taught it. Uh, it was a necessary fact about the world that one number times another was the second, the same thing as the second number times the one, um, simply because the number of holes in the panel is whatever it is, no matter how you count it. That's amazing. Did that make them congruent? Well, in some sense, yes. I mean, congruence is a notion that we often use in a purely geometric setting, hey, these two triangles are, are congruent, these two quadrilaterals are congruent. But if you were to say, when are two sets of things congruent? I think the, and I say, well, what should I mean by that? I think the best thing that you could mean would be that they are equal in number. Equinumerous, we might say, if we wanted to be fancy. We're talking with Jordan Ellenberg. His new book is Shape the Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. How much did you research and learn about things like the St. Louis Exposition of 1904 and the show Survival and Abraham Lincoln's pension for Euclid and things like that in, in writing this book? Those particular things, like every single one of those was not in the original plan. So I got to say, as a writer, maybe maybe my 
process is not so great. I don't know how other people do it, but I think what you're supposed to do, right, is sort of figure out what you're going to write about and then have a nice outline that you send to the publisher and say, this is what I'm going to do. And then you do that. Okay, here's what I do. I write an outline like that and I send it to the publisher and say, this is what I'm going to do. And they say, great. And then I start to write one chapter and I'm learning about something and then I find out about something else I didn't know. And then that takes me to a different place, which connects to a third thing I didn't know I was going to write about. And before you know it, I'm going in some completely different direction because, you know, when you're learning, learning about stuff is much more exciting and interesting than talking about stuff you already know. And my feeling as a writer has always been that if I'm excited, the reader is going to be excited. And if I'm bored, the reader is going to be bored. So I follow where my excitement takes me. But what that means is that the books never end up looking like I imagine they're going to look. So all this stuff you talk, all those things you mentioned were things that I found out about while I was researching. And I was like, oh, I've got to do that. I've got to write about that. That's crazy. I got to put that in. And my experience is that the, the publishers really appreciate that kind of extrapolation. Yeah, they're never mad. I mean, as long as, as, long as they're happy with what I turn in, they don't How, care that much whether it's what I said I was going to do. I remember what the fact checking was like on my book, which was, you know, just like some simple, basic historical facts. What was the fact checking like that? that this book went through and, and, and how did the fact checkers at, at Penguin deal with these concepts? Well, I hope I'm not pulling back the curtain too much, but there are not fact checkers at Penguin. Like that's not a service that the publisher provides for you. That is on your own and it's optional, I'll be quite honest with you. But I have a one, I had a wonderful research assistant. Actually, this is great if there's any students listening to this in terms of having good like moxie and, uh, and put yourself forwardiness. Um, you know, this must've been last... March or April, and a college student wrote me out of the blue and was like, do you need a research assistant? And I was like, my God, I do need a research assistant. The process of going and trying to find one was, you know, beyond my executive function. But uh, this wonderful student wrote me and was like, do you need somebody? And, uh, and I hired her. So I paid her to do all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, basically, I would send her uh, the chapters and she would check the facts for me, like, and everything. And there were things I got to say, things that I thought I knew that she would be like, do you actually have a source for this? Or is this just something you, somebody told you one time? And sometimes I could find a source. And sometimes I would be like, well, I guess something I always thought was common knowledge is just something I made up or something somebody made up and told me or somehow got dropped into my brain or whatever. So, um, so yeah, that's the process. I mean, it's, and of course, remember, this is mostly being written during the pandemic. So it's not like I was like going to the library to look stuff up. So Google Scholar, man, how did people write books before there was Google Scholar and Google Books where you can sort of anything from the 1880s that you need? Okay, not anything, but you can find a lot of original documents. And that's where I got lots of stuff. In my world, it's newspaperarchives.com. I mean, being able to look up the, those old newspapers is just invaluable. Um, and the folks from the actually with the St. Louis exhibition, that was where the folks at the UW library helped me a lot because they're experts at like looking stuff up and getting information out of old newspapers. So they found um, a lot of great coverage for me from the St. Louis papers of the time that helped me kind of depict that moment with like kind of all the great thinkers of the world unlikely gathered into St. Louis in 1904 to kind of talk to each other and have this huge conference. Yeah, a shout out to all the librarians of the world. Well, let's, let's talk about that St. Louis Exposition 1904 that brings Poincaré and the others there. How great an assemblage was that and how much was accomplished in those couple of days in St. Louis? 
Well, those are two really different questions because in terms of the assemblage, you know, it was incredible who was there. And so many of the figures of the book who I was writing about for other reasons of Ronald Ross, the great British doctor who discovers that mosquitoes spread malaria and won the Nobel Prize for that, but who secretly thought that medicine was a bunch of BS and really wanted to be a mathematician and a poet. This was a fascinating character who I ended up writing a lot about. Um, Henri Poincaré, uh, the great geometer of the beginning of the century, the person who from, from Paris who sort of put geometry on its modern footing. Ludwig Boltzmann, who was thinking about the sort of understructure uh, of matter and his great rival, Wilhelm Ostwald. They're all there among, among like hundreds and hundreds of other great scientists, thinkers, poets, writers, Helen Keller, Geronimo. Everybody's there. Everybody's there. Um, now, what was accomplished? Well, these big fancy conferences... I don't know if that much is accomplished there. So the people show up and give a talk. And in fact, Ronald Ross, he kind of rather proudly writes about how he was invited to speak in the medical section and he gave a talk with lots of geometry in it that nobody understood. Now he was, it was his personality. He was like, oh, it was great. Like none of those doctors understood a word of what I was saying. In terms of actually accomplishing something, maybe it's better to give a talk that people understand, but he wanted to sort of show off his mathematical <laughs> prowess in front of a bunch of people who were not going to get it. So he was who he was. I mentioned Abraham Lincoln and Euclid. What does it tell you about Abraham Lincoln as a person, a lawyer, and a politician that he applied himself to mastering Euclid? I, yeah, and that was really interesting for me because I have to admit that I am not ultra knowledgeable about 19th century American history and in particular about Abraham Lincoln. The person, you know, to me, he's like the bronze dude in front of Bascom Hall, like the sort of a, a, a figure not a person. And so reading about, um, learning about his love for Euclid and his love for geometry, which is really something that is like when he's a country lawyer. So before he's president, before he's like the bronze Lincoln that we know with the address and the statues and the memorial uh, and the war, before all that, when he's a, a lawyer tramping around Illinois, um, sleeping in these two-bit hotels, um, he has this kind of crisis of faith where he's like, my job as a lawyer is to walk into a court and people keep on asking me if I can prove my case. And I realized, I don't know what that word means. What does that mean? Prove something. What's everybody talking about? We're all here in the court talking about it and nobody knows what it means. This is when he goes back to Euclid and says, let me see what a proof actually is and this seems so characteristic of it. I mean, and when you read, as I have been had been doing, um, you know, people's accounts of Lincoln, people's memories of Lincoln, the person, not the hero, not the president, but the person, um, you really see what appealed to him about geometry. This idea that you don't say something until you can really justify that you have the right to say it. That's very deep in him. Now, I think it's an interesting question. Do you want to say? He somehow, do you want to say he got that from studying Euclid and learning geometry and learning proofs? Or do you want to say that was his temperament and because it was his temperament, he found something in Euclid that really resonated with him? You know, it's hard to know always which way the causal arrow goes, especially for people who have been dead a long time. Uh, but um, to use a kind of very modern word, it made Lincoln very relatable for me. I like, you know, there's a story, another story I didn't know that I found out about is, you know, he tried to square the circle, this famously impossible problem uh, that goes back thousands of years that people have endlessly been trying to solve. Um, it was so famous that, you know, Dante uses it as a metaphor for what it means to be really 
absolutely confused and befuddled. He's like, oh, I was like somebody trying to try to square the circle. Like that's how messed up I was. So Lincoln, like so many other people, gets obsessed with this and spends two days trying to do it. Um, finally gives up. This is a story sort of from his law partner who says like, and we could all tell he was very sensitive about it. So we never, we never mentioned it again. He like did nothing else for two days, didn't work on the law. And then, um, then two days later, all of those pages and all of those sheets and all of those multicolored inks were gone. And we just never brought it up again. But what I like about Lincoln, I mean, lots of people tried to square the circle and actually people became obsessed with it and sort of would insist that they had solved the problem, even though we now know it's impossible to do so. What I like about Lincoln is that he was kind of bold and ambitious enough to try it, but also humble and clear seeing enough to understand that he had not succeeded. That's actually not such a common combination. Lincoln tried to square the circle. The former guy probably couldn't even draw a circle. <laughs> actually, Poincaré was really bad at drawing circles too. That's very relatable for me. His students talk about how he was terrible at the blackboard. And they said his circle was kind of like, if it closed up, you were lucky. It certainly wasn't perfectly round. <laughs> and there's a certain informality about the illustrations in this book as well. Yeah, and that's something, um, you know, you said we didn't have to talk about this subject, which is a sore spot for you, I know, Stu, but this is something <laughs> I learned from Linda Berry, actually, our colleague at the University of Wisconsin, uh, who is, if you don't know her, like the great cartoonist, uh, Linda Berry. Um, when I was writing my first book, I had drawn kind of mock-ups of all the pictures I wanted in the book. And I went to Linda, who is sort of the only artist I know in town. I was like, I need to like hire an artist to make these pictures look nice from my mock-ups, but I don't know any artists. That's not really my scene. Like, how do I hire an artist? And she looked at my mock-ups and she's like, well, you should use these. Like, why are you going to replace these? with somebody else's work? Would you pay somebody to write the words for you? This had never even occurred to me, but this was, I think she was absolutely correct that my crappy drawings, informal as they are, you know, create the same impression as if somebody's doodling on a napkin or writing on the blackboard uh, in front of you. For a subject that I think people already find a little bit intimidating, I think it's actually better to have these like rather crude diagrams. Not everybody thinks so. There's definitely people who are like, why are the drawings so crappy? But I think most people like them. Well, you must really appreciate her advice to uh, recommend that she had, she should have gotten the Nobel Prize for Literature instead of Bob Dylan. So, and do that in print in times. That was a very bold. <laughs> I hope she appreciated it. Speaking of UW faculty, before your time, one of the stars of the history department there was a scholar named William Appleman Williams, and the Republican legislators once hauled him up during the protest there and said, and they demanded to know, what are you teaching your students? And he said, I'm teaching them to think. Is that why we teach geometry in the other mathematics fields? It's a complicated question, but the simple answer is yes. I could give a more complicated answer, but the simple answer is pretty close to correct. And in fact, you know, one thing I found is that there was like a, there was a survey of American geometry teachers in the 1950s so, you know, this kind of era of education that we sort of hold up as a classical standard nowadays, for better or for worse. Um, and they said, like, why are you teaching this exact question you asked? They said, tell us, why are you teaching students geometry? We're taking a poll. Because even then, right, even in the 1950s, like we knew those students were not going to be called upon to prove that the sum of the, side, the angles in a triangle were 180 degrees in their daily life. Right. And so plenty of teachers said, well, we're teaching geometry so the kids will know geometry. 
But that was definitely the second place answer. And the first place answer was for teaching this so the students will have the habits of mind of geometry to understand as Lincoln had wanted to understand what it means to prove, what it means to construct an argument that's airtight out of small pieces laid end to end. And I think, you know, almost since the very beginning, that has been our pedagogical goal. Now, I actually think we've made a lot of progress. If you read about how this was done in the 19th century, I mean, students were just asked to memorize and recite the propositions as Euclid had written them down. I, I know it's a, a tradition, but I just can't believe that's good teaching. I can't believe that most students got that much out of that process. And even at the time, mathematicians like James Sylvester bitterly complained about what he called the frozen formality of British math education, this kind of rote process of reciting the masters word for word. Would you ever think about trying to teach at a lower, at a, a younger level? I mean, I got kids, so I do to an extent, right? But it's different when it's your own kids. But I mean, actually be in a, in a high school classroom and, and deal with that uh, minds that, that are developed to the 16, 17, eight year, 18 year olds and instead of college students? Would that, would that be an interesting challenge to you or would that be frustrating? I, I mean, I, th I think that it would be presumptuous to think I could do it because that's sort of just as I've built up over the years, like some fairly large amount of experience teaching undergraduates and PhD students. And I'm definitely a lot better at it than I was when I was starting out. Um, I'd be starting from zero. And there's people who like really know how to do it. It's a different skill, I think. It's related. And I love talking to high school kids. I love kind of coming and visiting, uh, you know, the high schools around Madison, especially Madison East, which has this unbelievable teacher, Cynthia Chin, who you may know, who kind of runs an entire math week in the spring every year, although unfortunately we couldn't have it last year. Um, I love going over to East and like meeting with her classes and kind of really getting into it with the kids there. Um, but I'm not there to cover the material, right? I'm there to kind of talk about fun stuff. I think um, it's complicated because I think math professors like me have something to say about K-12 education. We have something to say about what those kids are getting ready for if they're taking math in college. But it's very easy for us to kind of want to weigh in on this is how it should be done. This is what should happen when you're a room full of eight-year-olds doing math. And boy, from my perspective, you got to have a little humility. There is a lot about that scenario that I do not understand. You, you mentioned the French polymath Jules-Henri Poincaré, who figures very prominently in the book, both for his brilliance and his epigrams, one of which is, mathematics is the art of giving the same name to different things. What did he mean by that? Well, what he meant is that if you were to think about things systematically at all, you start to recognize that you have to categorize and you have to classify. And to some extent, this is something that we all do if we sort of like are driving around looking at the landscape. Um, we say that's a bunch of trees. We don't sort of, we, and we might classify them and say like, well, there are some oak trees and there's some maple trees. But if we think of each tree as a completely separate object that has nothing to do with all the others, it becomes impossible to say anything general at all, right? You want to say like, oh yeah, like maple trees, like this kind of soil. And not have somebody ask you which maple tree are you referring to. You have to make a statement about each one individually. No, you cluster them and say, I'm going to sort of, for the purpose of this discussion of what kind of soil is relevant, 
um, we're going to treat all maple trees as the same, even though obviously individual trees are not the same as each other, right? They're not the same tree, literally. So, I mean, this is, Poincaré said this about math because it's, in math is where we do this very formally. You brought up congruence. So yeah, we say two triangles are congruent if their sides are the same length and their angles are all the same. So we would say, speaking loosely, yeah, they're the same shape and the same size. They might be located in different places on the page, but you could move one to have it exactly cover the other. Um, they may be two different triangles, but in some important ways, they're not different. We can treat them as if they, as the same. We're talking to Jordan Ellenberg. His book is Shape the Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. Let's talk about some of the specific topics in the book, starting with the last chapter, How Math Broke Democracy and Might Still Save It. The reference, of course, is to gerrymandering, which, as you point out in the book, is so deep in American history, it actually goes back to colonial days. You were one of a group of mathematicians who signed a brief submitted to the Supreme Court in 2019 when it was considering a gerrymandering cases out of Maryland and North Carolina. Why did the mathematicians do that? And why did you sign? And what was the standard you wanted the court to declare? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. And of course, it's one which I think uh, many listeners of, in Wisconsin are very familiar with, because for better or for worse, by which I mean for worse, <laughs> our state is a poster child for what gerrymandering looks like, especially, by the way, our assembly districts. It's not so much our congressional districts. It's really the assembly districts that are the very badly gerrymandered ones here in Wisconsin. And uh, so I write because that's the, the situation. That's the scenario I know best. I write a lot about our assembly districts in this book. And so hopefully readers around the country will like learn a lot of different Wisconsin place names and get some sense of the geography of our state from all the discussions I give of, you know, the sort of political line between Milwaukee and Waukesha County and, and, and matters like that. Um, so to to put it simply, there is a tradition, of course, what gerrymandering is, is the process by which the boundaries of legislative districts are drawn in such a way as to give a huge advantage, sometimes an almost insuperable advantage to one political party. Um, and the reason that it's possible is that we have a structure in most U.S. states, not all, where the people drawing those lines are precisely the existing legislators. And that is the way that we do it here in Wisconsin, that the current majority in the legislature, without any requirement of having input from the other party, um, will propose lines which are very much designed to maintain that party's majority no matter what the voters may wish. Now, when there's a governor of a different party, as there is right now, we'll have some judicial fireworks as we sort of try to figure out what to do when that map gets enacted by the legislature and is vetoed by the governor, as is sure to happen. But um, the maps that we have now were not created under that system, right? They were created in 2011 uh, when Republicans held a majority in the legislature and the governor's mansion. So traditionally, we thought that gerrymandering was done by drawing very weirdly shaped districts, that you could see gerrymandering on the map because it involved these like crazily sinuous districts that were drawn in this like bizarre tentacular way in order to capture just those voters who the representative wanted to be in that district. Well, the bad news is that because of advances in computation, 
uh, you can now make a very gerrymandered map where the districts look fine. And if you look at Wisconsin's current districts, I promise they look fine. Like the naked eye would not detect that there was anything wrong with them. But in fact, they're incredibly powerfully engineered to give Republicans a majority, just as the districts in North Carolina were and just as the districts in, in Maryland were in order to give to preserve a huge Democratic supermajority. I mean, anybody who wants to do it can do it. And politicians in general are pretty interested in preserving their own interests. So they do it uh, independent of party. Um, Ooh, I talked for a long time and I like lost the thread of your question. So well, you, well so that that explains why mathematicians kind of wanted wanted to get into it, but and sort of why you signed because you were offended by it. But what was the standard that you wanted the court to declare? So what we can do now, so I, I think I told you how math broke democracy, and now the question of how can math save it. See, the problem is this. What's the remedy? What would a non-gerrymandered, what would a fair map look like? Well, one way to say it would be like, well, have somebody who's not a political operative draw the map. Um, instead, well, we can't make that happen. The system we have is the system we have. And barring legislative changes, like a partisan actor will draw the map. So what we really want to know is let's compare the map we have with what the map would have looked like if a nonpartisan actor had drawn it. But that's a counterfactual and counterfactuals are hard, right? How can you possibly know that? Um, that's where the math comes in. And this is kind of like, this is one of the parts where the book goes like pretty deep. It was pretty fun to write about this kind of wonderful line of mathematical research that generates thousands upon thousands of randomly drawn maps, maps that are drawn by a computer and the computer is not biased in favor of either party because the computer has not been programmed to be biased in favor of one party. The computer only cares about what you tell it to care about. So it's, it's, um, it's a perfect example of a nonpartisan actor. And then, you know, you can look at like 10,000 possible maps of Wisconsin, all of which obey all the legal requirements and were drawn by the machine. And you can see that essentially none of them offer Republicans as favorable a political landscape as the one that we have. So the, the standard that we asked the court to think about was this kind of outlier standard where you say it's not a matter of what's the right number of seats for a party to have, because, you know, how we can't figure that out with math. We can't say, like, there's a certain number of seats that belong to the Democrats and a certain number of seats that belong to the Republicans. No, what we can say is what would the map have looked like if it hadn't been drawn by somebody who was trying to gerrymander the crap out of it. And now we can actually estimate that pretty well. And we can see that the map we have is absolutely the off the scale of, it doesn't look like any of those 10,000 possibilities. It's like way off to the edge of the bell curve. So that's what we presented to the court and the court basically ignored it. Did the court even understand the question? Well, that is an interesting question. And I can't look into people's minds. Well, I can say one thing. I can say that Elena Kagan definitely understood it. I can say they're reading the oral arguments. I came away feeling that Elena Kagan is way, way better at math than her eight <laughs> co-justices at the time. Like, I mean, this seems very instinctively easy for her to grasp it. But, you know, talking to, again, you know, we talked about the humility necessary that a math professor, I'm good at math, doesn't mean I know how to teach in a K-12 classroom. In the same way, I know a lot about math. I'm not a lawyer. So I really try to avoid saying this is what's right or wrong as a matter of law because that's not my expertise. And one interesting thing I've learned from talking to a lot of 
of, of people in law. Because by the way, I mean, one thing that's really interesting about this problem is that no discipline can do it by itself. This is what I say in the book is, it's not a math problem, gerrymandering, but it's also not, not a math problem. You know what I mean? Like we like if we treat it like a problem, let's ignore all this kind of like legal political stuff and just treat it as a math problem. No, you're going to get completely crap answers, right? You're going to sort of that leads to saying like, well, why don't we just like break Wisconsin into perfectly square boxes, like all of the same size? Like that will solve the problem. No, that won't solve the problem. That'll have like no uh, correspondence with political realities of people on the ground. Uh, on the other hand, the tradition in this country is to try to treat this as a purely legal and political problem without doing any quantitative reasoning at all. And that has led us into the pickle that we're in now. You got to have both. So that's all my, pre my preface to saying that, um, you know, from the point of view of the lawyers, they would say it's not so much a question of whether the Supreme Court justices are capable of understanding this argument. It's a question of whether they they want a standard that they feel like every court in the country can apply, not just them. So I understand them wanting it to be simple and applicable. Um, I think the standard that we proposed is pretty simple and applicable. It's simple and applicable enough to be like written about in a book that you buy in the airport. And that's what I tried to do for my readers. In, in two senses, that standard is? And in two senses, that standard is if the map as enacted is an extreme outlier among all the randomly produced maps generated by a nonpartisan computer, then that map should be held to be constitutionally suspect. It seems that when the, the advocates were saying this is not about, we're not asking for proportional representation and the, and the justices are going, oh, so you're asking for proportional representation, that, that would indicate they were not fully understanding the question. I, yes, although again, there's a question of how willful it was. I mean, I really found it very frustrating to, to listen to this and to read the transcript because just as you say, I felt like they were answering the question that was legally easier for easy for them to answer rather than asking answering the question that the petitioners had actually brought before them. And that to me is a little bit of a bummer, frankly. Yeah. You mentioned that you wrote a good part of this book during that lost year of, two, of 2020. What do the episodic disease of cattle plague and malaria carrying mosquitoes have to do with understanding the progression of COVID? Yeah, well, you know, we talked about how the book that comes out in the bookstores is not so similar to the book I proposed two years ago in an outline. And one big way is that obviously I didn't know I was going to get so interested in mathematical epidemiology and the spread of pandemics. Guess what? A lot of people got suddenly much more interested in that topic last year. I was one of them and I ended up writing a lot about that. Um, and, you know, everybody, I think, especially in those early moments when the parameters of the crisis were not at all clear, Everybody wanted to be useful. Everybody wanted to say, like, whatever I know about, let me try to find some way to make this useful. So all the mathematicians I know, of course, were like, let's think about the curve. Remember the curve, the curve we were going to flatten, right? So, of course, if you're a mathematician, if you're a geometer, you're like, what is the curve, right? <laughs> that's, our, that's our domain. That's something we should be able to say something about. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that and then thinking about my thinking and wanting to sort of write about it in the book. Um, I found myself, as I do so often, going back into history. So why was I writing about cattle plagues? Because I was learning the history of how mathematical biologists thought about the rise and fall of epidemics. 
among humans and among animals where they're called epizootics, I learned. Like it's not an epidemic because demos means people unless it's humans. Um, what's kind of amazing is that people were able to make pretty decent models of the rise and fall of epidemics before we even knew how diseases were transmitted. Like before we even had the germ theory of disease, that's what's amazing. We could model it without knowing anything about the actual underlying mechanism. Still, people had pretty decent ways of, um, of, of sort of making decent predictions about what was coming next. And it's, you know, maybe everybody was looking for some comfort, but yes, I found this kind of thing comforting. The idea that you really sort of feel yourself part of this progression of human history where everything we have to deal with, you know, you start thousands and thousands of years ago and everything's just random and unpredictable. You know, a comet comes, like, why the hell did that happen? Like, nobody knows when it's going to come or when it's going to come back or even that it comes back. Um, and people labor really hard to get to a place where, you know, first the motions of the heavenly bodies, instead of being random and unpredictable, we can sort of make charts and understand how that's going to happen, what's going to happen with the tides. And then more and more things that we sort of go from thinking that this is just fate, you know, a plague. It's just fate. It comes and goes with no rhyme or reason. I admire humanity's instinct to be like, Let's model, let's try to understand, let's try to predict, even when we can't get it on the nose, let's try to know something about it because that's the spirit we were in, right? In February and March and April of 2020, being like this calamity is befalling us. Let's try to figure out something about what the hell is going on. It's a very, very natural and longstanding human practice. And some people got it right. And unfortunately, some people in a position of power got it absolutely, totally wrong. I, yeah, but you know what? Like that's that's what uncertainty means, dude. Like that's I mean, that's that's the trial the trial and error. Exactly. The question is how fast is your feedback loop? The question is how quickly do you adjust? But uh, I don't blame anybody for getting stuff wrong, to be honest. Because once you realize the error, you get to run another trial. If you don't get a lot of stuff wrong, you're only asking the easy questions. Mm-hmm. On, on a lighter note, 90 million people, 90 million people have weighed in on Google on the question of how many holes are there in a straw? First, what is a hole and why is the correct answer that it has two holes, but one is the negative of the other? Yeah, so this is a question. I love asking this to a room full of people because everybody will have the same reaction. Oh, it's obvious. And then they realize that the person standing next to them also thinks it's obvious, but has a different answer from them. And then they start to fight. And then there's a lot of energy. And then it's really fun. Um, You know, to me, the fact that people get obsessed with this on the internet is a signal, a signal that there's some real mathematical content. uh, That there is this sort of whether they know it or not, they're interacting with something that there's actually some juice to. And indeed, this question of like, of course, it comes down to what do you mean by a whole? Um, And that leads to the beginning of this subject, this part of geometry that Henri Poincaré founded, which we now call topology. He called it analysis situs. He was great at epigrams, not so great at naming mathematical fields. Topology is a much, rolls off the tongue like a lot better, right? What I do in the book is I start with this question. And for the straw, there's there's, there's mostly, most people will either say there's one hole and it goes all the way through, or there's two holes, one at the top and one at the bottom. Now there is a sort of small hardcore group of zero holers who kind of have their own vibe going on and are a minority position, but most people say one or two. Um, 
And then whatever their position is on that, you can say, well, okay, how many holes are there in a pair of pants? And that puts a lot of pressure on people, right? Because the, the one holers are like, well, I don't know. Now is there still one hole? Cause there's sort of like the inside of the pants is all one continuous space, just like the inside of a straw. It seems kind of weird to say like, oh, you think there's two leg holes in a pair of pants, but actually there's only one. Uh, another answer is that, well, there's three holes, right? There's the two legs and there's the waist. Um, and another answer, which is what my daughter came up with a very good way to express this, actually. Um, she said, well, there's two holes because it looks like there's three, but the waist is really just the combination of the two legs. Which really makes sense if you think about it, right? I mean, uh, a pair of pants is a straw in which one side of it has been sort of split in twain. Um, so, so this idea that holes can be combined, that's fundamental to this discipline of topology that sort of Henri Poincaré creates and then Emmy Noter, uh, you know, develops in the way that's necessary for, uh, for this whole story. And this is an incredible advance, the idea that whatever a hole is, it's things that can be added just like numbers. Remember I said, what we were talking about at the beginning about how fractions, that's a huge conceptual leap. That's a new kind of thing, and yet you can add and subtract them just like numbers. Well, the same thing happened with the idea of holes that you make a depth, you can make a definition of something that sort of behaves the way you expect like a hole to behave. And then what Emmy Noter gave us is this idea that you can add and subtract them just like numbers, that it makes sense to say waist equals leg plus leg. So the straw has two holes, but they're the same hole. So, so really, okay, to be really precise, you would say waist is the negative of leg plus leg. And then for the straw, the top hole is negative of the bottom hole. You know, one way to think about it that I like is that if you sip through a straw, the amount of milkshake that's coming in the bottom hole is the same as the amount that's coming out the top hole. So they're not independent from each other. But if the top hole is, if one hole is the negative of the other, doesn't that mean there are no holes? No. It's like saying, it's like saying, here's, here's a good comparison. Let's say you're in a very narrow corridor that's oriented towards the north and the south. So how many directions can you go? Well, you can walk north or you can walk south. So you might say, okay, there's two directions. On the other hand, there's only one dimension, right? There's sort of only one dimension on which you can travel. And there's two directions, one of which is the negative of the other. But that doesn't mean there's zero directions you can go. Okay, okay. There's another mind-bending sort of party trick that you discuss, which is how to read someone's mind with, with a deck of cards at a, at a long distance, which, which I don't think we have to get into, but it's a great party trick if, if people ever get the chance. But what you just mentioned about directions to go and sort of brings up the relevance of geometry and gradient descent and the talking head song once in a lifetime to the development of artificial intelligence. Explain, the, explain how they all fall together. Yeah, this is something I was really excited to write about because, you know, we are in this world where artificial intelligence is a buzzword and it truly is really exciting and really interesting. And, you know, at the University of Wisconsin, we have so many fascinating researchers who work on this area. I talk to them a lot and it's an incredibly interesting stew of computer science and engineering and statistics and math. You know, I say it's like a new field of math we're developing under our feet as we go. Um, I think to the general public, it can seem like magic. 
it can seem like it's just some kind of the machine is like some kind of mysterious oracle that sort of somebody drips magic artificial intelligence juice into and then it beats us in chess or something like that. Uh, in fact, the underlying principles of how artificial intelligence systems are built is not that mathematically complicated. And so I wanted to write about that in the book and sort of demystify it a little bit. In, in some sense, it's just a very big game of trial and error where every single one of those uh so to speak, artificially intelligent algorithms. Um, what is this buzzword gradient descent that you mentioned that I write about in the book? It just means this. You design some algorithm. You think of all the ways you could tweak it. You see which one gives you the best performance. You tweak your algorithm that way. You make a little minor change in it. Okay, now you have a new algorithm. Now you do the same thing again. Now you think of all the ways you can change your new algorithm, see which one works best. Do that again. If you have a real fast computer with a lot of processors, you can do that a lot, a lot, a lot of steps. And what's kind of amazing, and this is the part that I think theoretically, in many ways we still don't understand, is that this very simple-minded process of continually making small changes that improve your algorithm's performance very, very incrementally, that that process, if you do it for a long time, actually leads to very good results. And we actually don't really know why that's the case. We can't prove that it should always work, but it works a lot. And it happens so quickly that people people don't see this the intervening steps. They just see the results, and and it and it appears to it's, it's like magic. Exactly. Oh, right. So absolutely, that you know the thing that is auto filling in text on your phone when you text, right? And is it predicting the next word? Um, that algorithm is not being developed on the fly. It was developed by sort of some huge amount of compute emitting who knows how much carbon uh, at Apple or at Google, depending on whose system you're using, like, you know, all at once a long time ago. Of course, it's constantly being updated, but it's not being done from scratch on the fly just with that little hunk of silicon in your pocket. I love the discussion in the book about the adaptive words and how you can create words which appear to be English words, but are not, but born out of the relationship between letters and, and what letters will follow other letters. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's this stuff is super fun to play with. And by the way, you know, one thing that I think is great in order in, in, in terms of demystifying AI, the one thing I would sort of counsel people who are, so to speak, AI civilians and are just like reading about developments is if you see a demonstration, you see like a cool video of a dancing robot on TV, or you sort of like read an article saying, this is how well this algorithm works. The demo is going to show you the very best performance. You know, they may like, try it like a thousand times and show you the best example out of those thousand runs. One thing that I think is pretty good about the AI industry is that a lot of folks will just let you play with their thing and you can see how well it works by yourself. And when you do that, that's like, if you get to play with this stuff yourself, that's when you really see that it's not magic. You very quickly try to start to see like what kind of things it can do and what kind of things it can't do. I hate typing on my smartphone. So the fact that it can fill in the words before when I only type two or three letters, I like that. I think that's a good thing. Geometry seems to have a number, no pun intended, of key phrases and concepts. Let's do a little refresher course with a couple of definitions and applications. What is the golden ratio? 
own. And the golden ratio is a very charming number that's very popular. Um, there's a lot of ways to set it up. You could say it's the ratio between uh, the diagonal of a pentagon and one of its sides. That's the way that Euclid thought of it. Um, you could say that it's one plus the square root of five divided by two. If you wanted to sort of approximate it, you could say, well, it's like 1.618, like dot, dot, dot. Like it's a number of about that size, like between one and two, a little bit closer to two. Um, it has kind of acquired a sheen of mysticism over the years. And sort of one thing, you know, I write about in the book is on the one hand, there's a lot I like about it from a mathematical point of view. I write about the way in which you could say that it's the most irrational number out of all irrational numbers in a way that you can make precise. It's the one that's hardest to well approximate by a rational number. On the other hand, there's a whole slew of mystical claims that somehow, you know, a so-called golden rectangle whose length and width are in this ratio to each other is somehow the most beautiful rectangle claims that like Leonardo da Vinci and the classical Greek sculptors used this ratio on purpose. No, they didn't. There's no evidence for that. Um, ideas that you can, a very popular idea that, you know, your Bloomberg terminal will compute this for you. Uh, the idea that the golden ratio is the sort of key to understanding the various waves and fluctuations of the stock market. That's also probably not true. Like there's not real evidence for that. It's sort of a theory that got big in the thirties uh, called the Elliott wave theory that sort of somehow has persisted to this day. But I think it's an interesting question why a little bit of mathematical dressing makes mysticism more appealing to people. Maybe that's a sociology question, not a math question, but it's definitely true. I think my favorite is there's this incredible document. I really recommend people look at it on the internet. That is like, it's a pitch for the new Pepsi logo that was introduced about 20 years ago. Um, and why this new Pepsi logo is going to revolutionize not just Pepsi, but the entire universe. And like, this is the most insane, unhinged thing you will ever read. I wish they would sort of reboot Mad Men and have it just be about the development of this Pepsi logo and the, the, the amount of cocaine that must have been consumed by the advertising executives who are making this and saying like, this logo, you know, they have all that this, this is in the golden ratio to that and that is in the golden ratio to that and they're like, and it has to do with like the Mobius strip and Fibonacci and Pythagoras and, um, you know, all of this kind of the entire intellectual history of humanity culminates in the development of the Pepsi globe. Um, it's the finest example of the form, and I heartily recommend people read it. Yeah, it, it's still not as good as, as Diet Coke. You mentioned Fibonacci. What is the Fibonacci sequence? Oh, the Fibonacci sequence is one of the most famous sequences in mathematics, and it's also very fun to play with. It's simply this, and this is sort of as much algebra as, as geometry, of course. Um, you start with two numbers, let's say one and one, and then each term of the sequence is the sum of the previous two. So it's, it's a very famous example of what's called a recursion, where you sort of keep on doing some process and each thing is determined in terms of what you've previously done. So one and one is two, so great, now you have one, one, two. One and two is three, so now you have one, one, two, three. Two and three is five, so now you have one, one, two, three, five. And so it goes, one, one, two, three, five, eight, 13, 21, and so on and so on. You can go on for as long as you please. Now, why do you bring it up now? Because it so happens that if you look at a term of the Fibonacci sequence in the next one, the ratio of those two terms gets closer and closer to the golden ratio. So another wonderful feature of the golden ratio is that it somehow uh, keeps track of the behavior of the Fibonacci sequence. But this sequence itself, one thing I learned from my colleague Manjul Bhargava at Princeton um, 
is that it was not first observed by Fibonacci, who was a 12th century Italian mathematician. It actually appears in Sanskrit poetry. So I call it in the book, the Virahanka Fibonacci sequence, because this kind of great, uh, not a professional mathematician, a, 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 a literary scholar of, of India, Virahanka, um, discovered this sequence as the number of different meters involving different numbers of syllables uh, in the Sanskrit style of poetry. Are there a lot of mathematicians who grew up in zip code 11235? You know, probably because it's in New York and like there's a lot of people in New York, right? It's a big zip code, probably more than living 53711 where I live. But yeah, that comes up because of uh, of the filmmaker Darren Aronofsky, who is, uh, as it happens, like a friend of a friend of mine. And he he made a movie called Pi, which is absolutely it's actually I got to say, I sort of clown on it in the book a little bit, but I also like it a lot because even though in some sense, the math that is in it is complete hokum, the feeling of math is somehow there's something correct about it. There's sort of something spiritually correct about the way he depicts the process of doing math. But um, but I do like to clown on him a little bit because the movie is sort of filled with this kind of like obsessive golden ratio mysticism. And maybe it has to do with the Torah and, uh, and Kabbalah. And, um, and he talks about, this filmmaker talks about growing up in 11235 and feeling like as a result, he had some kind of like a mystical inborn connection to the Fibonacci sequence. I guess like the 800,000 other people who live in that zip code. You mentioned that the Fibonacci sequence was not actually first found by Fibonacci. That would then bring us to the Stig to Stigler's Law. <laughs> yes, Stigler's Law uh, developed by uh, Steve Stigler down at the University of Chicago says that nothing is ever named after the person who actually invented it. And in keeping with that, uh, that law is actually about 20 years older than Stigler's introduction of it. Did Fermat actually develop his last theorem? He stated it. So this is like a famous question of Fermat's that it became known as Fermat's last theorem because once in a kind of fit of over-optimism, he jotted down on, a, on his scratch paper in the margin of a book that he had proved it. Um, he didn't prove it. He might've thought he had for a moment and everybody who works on math has those moments where you're like, lying in bed or taking a shower and you're like, I've got it. I see how to crack this impossible problem. And then, you know, like another couple of minutes thought and you realize you didn't do it. But, you know, if you write in your notebook, oh, I have this great idea. Most of us don't go back and cross that out and be like, nope, that idea sucked. And I think that's exactly what happened to Fermat, um, that he believed he had cracked uh, this wonderful problem, which in fact took about 300 years of mathematical development uh, until it was finally settled by uh, Richard Taylor and Andrew Wiles in the 90s. Yeah. I think that the best phrase of all, though, is the awesome theorem. Yeah, it's my translation, to be honest. It's, it's Gauss's theorem, which in Latin he called the Theorema Egregium. Uh, it's probably more typically translated as like the Magnificent Theorem or the Great Theorem. But in modern parlance, I mean, awesome is what my kids would call it. Sure. And, what, what, and what does it hold? Well, so what it is about is the curvature of different surfaces, which is a very geometric notion. Um, it tells us that if something is what's called positively curved, like the peel of an orange, um, you can certainly take the peel of an orange, cut it and sort of manipulate it and sort of change its shape. But you can't make it flat, right? Imagine trying to flatten out the peel of an orange. You can't do it. And that's because as Gauss showed, um, unless you really like compress or stretch the material, 
you can't change curvature. You can't turn a curved, a positively curved thing into a flat thing. Um, and in some sense, this, you know, the, the application of that theorem that's rather famous that I write about in the book is the fact that if you have a flat slice of pizza, you know, something that's flat, like a sheet of paper, has zero curvature. Um, this is a little bit counterintuitive, but something like a cylinder also has zero curvature in, Gauss, in Gauss's sense, uh, even though it's not quite flat. It's different from a sphere. And, I, and that makes sense, right? Because you can indeed take a piece of paper and roll it into a cylinder. In fact, that's the way to make a straw, right? To sort of bring us back to something else we talked about. You can take a flat sheet of paper and roll it into a cylinder, but you can't like make it into a globe. If you're holding a flat slice of pizza, as you well know, now, again, for the true Wisconsinites, we got to envision a New York slice here, okay? So like a very, a big, rather floppy, triangular slice. Like they used to have a pizza de Roma, which unfortunately is a COVID casualty on State Street. Um, so not an Ian slice, but like a- We got to raise. We, we got to raise yeah. up at the, yeah, yeah. Exactly, okay. So if you hold a slice like this flat, what's going to happen is the tip is going to dip down and it's going to drip cheese all over you. And what you know, if you eat pizza like this, is that you got to, um, this is a little hard to do in pure audio, but um, you got to roll the edges of the crust to make a kind of U shape of the pizza. That's folding it into a sort of cylindrical shape in a different way. And what Gauss's theorem guarantees is that once you do that, the tip can't bend down. For the tip to bend down, it turns out, would impart to the pizza a negative curvature, which you cannot do because a flat pizza is a zero curvature object. It can roll into a cylinder, but it can't uh, roll into a negative curvature surface. And that is indeed uh, how you keep the tip of the pizza from dripping cheese all over your shirt. And does this somehow relate to why a globe sh incorrectly shows Greenland being larger than Africa? Yeah, it, and it ends up, I mean, this is not so transparent, but it ends up being the same principle that um, curved things and flat things are just different. And, you know, the shape of the earth actually is roughly a sphere. So if you try to reproduce that on a flat sheet of paper, something is going to be wrong. Remember, I said you can't flatten an orange peel without compressing or stretching it. Um, same thing with the surface of the earth. If you try to compress that surface onto a flat sheet of paper, you have no choice but to compress or stretch it somewhere, which means something is going to be bigger than it should be, or some angles are going to be off, or something's going to be wrong. In this case, this the, the Mercator projection, which we sort of so commonly use, which uh, it, it stretches things at the poles and make things that are near the pole, like Greenland, look absolutely huge relative to how big they really are. How small is the group of people like you who have Erdos-Bacon numbers? Oh, okay. So what this means, and I talk again, one thing I write about a lot in the book is this idea of networks and especially this idea of social networks. Um, how many how many links do you need in a chain to connect you to somebody else? If you know the phrase six degrees of separation is sort of a whole play in a movie that's like very famously based on this idea. Um so within mathematics, there's a famous notion of the Erdős number, which is how many links of collaboration does it take to get to the famous Hungarian combinatorist and probabilist and geometer Paul Erdős. He wrote so many papers with so many people that in fact, most mathematicians have a pretty short chain to him. And my Erdős number is three. So that means that I wrote a paper with somebody who wrote a paper with somebody who wrote a paper with somebody with Erdős. Like if you're Erdős, your Erdős number is zero. 
If you wrote a paper with artist, your artist number is one. If you wrote a paper with someone with artist number one, your artist number is two and so on. Now, in parallel, most people who have been in a movie have what's called a Bacon number because Kevin Bacon is sort of the Paul Erdish of movies. He's been in like a million movies with a million different people and he's like incredibly well connected. Um, and so because I did this cameo uh, playing a role that was pretty easy for me to adopt of math professor in this movie Gifted, I was in that movie with someone who was in a movie with Kevin Bacon. And so my Bacon number is two. So uh, the distinction that I am proud to have is that I am one of the people who has both an Erdős number and a Bacon number. Um, somewhat ironically, considering I'm a mathematician, my Bacon number is lower. That's two, while my Erdős number is three. So I'm more closely connected to Kevin Bacon than to Erdős for a total of five. So that's pretty good, right? The lower, the better. The lower your number, the closer and more well-connected you are. And, but I'm and, not the champ. And, and for people who, who loved the Wonder Years, Danica McKellar also has an Erdős Bacon number. Absolutely, because right, she's been in a million things uh, as an actor, but at the same time, she was quite an accomplished mathematician who I think uh, is someone who certainly, if she didn't have this like, burgeoning dramatic career, was a great math major at UCLA who like would have gone on to get her PhD and been someone like me today. Yeah. Now, speaking of someone like you, you were one of the outstanding young mathematicians of in the world as, as a youth. You graduated from Harvard, Harvard summa cum laude. You chuck it all to get a master's in creative writing. Why did you do that? And what did your parents and your peers and your professors think about that? Well, you know, chuck it all is a little bit strong because it's a one year degree. So you're not really exactly sort of disappearing off the grid for a decade, like only to emerge grizzled and literary. No, it's not like that. It was a bit spontaneous. It was a bit impromptu. I'm certainly extremely glad I did it for a lot of reasons. One, because I think I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, writing these books, if I hadn't done that and spent a year with people thinking of me as a writer. You know, I mean, you need permission to think of yourself as a writer in a way. It's hard to say, like, I'm a writer. It sounds a little pretentious, right? But if enough people tell you that you are, enough people treat you like a writer, then you are one, right? There I was in a classroom teaching creative writing to a bunch of undergraduates. So it's like, okay, I guess I'm a writer. If these kids are paying expensive tuition to sort of stand here in the room listening to me tell them how to write. I guess I'm a writer, right? You sort of start to believe it if you hear it from people enough. I, you know, the other thing, and I talk to the students about this a lot, is that I missed math every day. And that was incredibly useful to me to know that if I were away from it, I would miss it. I mean, math is really hard. And I tell our, our students at UW as they're thinking about their futures and what to do and going to grad school and et cetera, I encourage them to take some time off. I think they're concerned about it. They're like, oh, what if I forget how to do math? You're not going to forget how to do math in a year or two years or three years. And we've had so many successful PhD students who have been out in the world doing other things. And then they return uh, to come to us and to get their advanced degrees. Some of our best students have been people who did not come right after college. And the advantage of that is that, you know, you miss it. You know what I mean? Math, getting a PhD in math is like, a pretty hard road. And it's really useful to know about yourself. Hey, when I was doing something else, I wanted to be doing math. Helps you not quit. And finally, speaking of doing it at the University of Wisconsin, you're from Maryland, college in Massachusetts in Maryland, first job in New Jersey. Why did you come to Wisconsin? Well, you know, for people who know how the academic job market works, you know, you apply all over the country and you sort of see where there's a job for you. And, you know, as you probably know, like lots of people move from the East Coast to Madison every year because of the university or because of Epic. And, you know, from your vocal tones, I'm guessing you also grew up on the East Coast. Is that yeah. right? Or have I read you wrong? The island, yes. Okay. 
So you must have seen this. I mean, I've been here 15 years. You've been here longer. So you must have seen this too, that, you know, there's people who come from the East and they last like a year or two. And they're like, this is too weird for me. I can't take it. Like I'm going back. I'm going back. And there's people like, like my wife and I who feel really at home here. You can't figure out which one you are until you make the jump. You'll find out that you're really here when you find yourself rooting for Wisconsin sports teams against the teams you grew up with. When I, when I found myself rooting for the Packers against the football giants, I, I knew I, I had actually moved here. Here's where I've landed. Here's my equilibrium. I am, I am all in still for the Baltimore Orioles. That will never change. But for the Bucks, I'm, 100, I'm an Orioles-Bucks fan. So now you're a big star. How heavily are you being recruited by, by other schools? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I'm pretty settled here. I mean, I think this is, uh, I mean, it, it's not, it's not like a, it's not like a Nicole Hannah Jones, you know, it's not that kind of scenario. Okay. Well, we are glad to hear that because you are a great addition to uh, the, the faculty and the community at large. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Jordan Ellenberg. Again, the book is Shape, the Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else from the Good People at Penguin Press. And again, you can see Professor Ellenberg in person this Saturday at 3 o'clock at the Discovery Building, 330 North Orchard Street. And for more information on the 27 other book festival events, wisconsinbookfestival.org. Next week on Mass and Book Beat, Terry Fry to discuss his book, Third Down and a War to Go, the All-American 1942 Wisconsin Badgers. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener sponsored community radio. Thank you.